right. We are recording, Brett. Very nice, Shira. <laughs> so our names have been established. Shall we start the show? Of course. Let's get started. My name is Shira, as I've established previously. I am a fan of romantic comedies. And my name is Brett, and I am a fan of the horror movies. And together, each week, Brett and I pick one rom-com. I, I pick the rom-com, obviously. Brett picks a horror. We watch those movies, and, you know, much like the mythical necromancer, we then resurrect those movies in their opposing genre. Yes. We take that rom-com, we turn it into a horror movie that you've already been imagining while watching <laughs> it. Or we take that horror movie and we put a romantic comedy plot over it, which I'm always imagining. Yes, much like a necromancer, there's always a twist there's, involved. There's always a twist, a little monkey paw <laughs> setup uh, when you decide to bring something back to life. You know, there's, there's always a catch. Uh, and the theme of this week's episode is, is one of my favorite tropes in movies, which is false identities in rom-coms. This is very popular, you know, just somebody being mistaken for someone else going along with the big lie, learning love, then having to confess that they conned everyone but you know it turns out okay in the end and then in horror we've we've got some great mistaken identity twists or false identity twists but those i mean that's usually something where you don't realize you're in a false identity movie until like maybe the middle or the end right um yeah and false identity is a little bit more different than like i mean i'll get into this when we talk about the Mm -hmm. aura but um it's different than like um undercover cop movies right i feel like undercover cop and sort of the genre that aura is going for where it's kind of like um sort of a a bluffing a bluff situation i feel like those are kind of lucy's kind of in a bluff situation too yeah um they're very similar kind of genres but they're there's a little distinction there that really separates them. So you'd say like a movie like Kindergarten Cop is distinct because oh, yeah. he goes in as the kindergarten teacher. Yeah, John with, Kimball, right? Is that yeah, his name? John yeah, John Kimball. The party pooper. <laughs> <laughs> he loves to poop on parties. Um, but yeah, so that one, because he's going in not improvisationally, but right. with full knowledge of the con that makes it different from the other false identity movies where it seems like seemingly innocent people which we'll get into why i don't think lucy or esteban are innocent actors in their charades at all um but seemingly innocent people with mistaken identities foisted upon them or i mean in in esteban's case he's sort of willingly going into the scenario where he has to bluff his way into it. It reminds me a lot of, um, 
I know one of the big things is um, Eyes Wide Shut. People who say like mm. anyone who says they like that movie doesn't really like that movie. <laughs> but I mean, um, why not? I really liked that movie the first time I saw it, and it's that phrase that you use, uh, catnip, uh-huh. where it's like I like those movies where you know, like Tom Cruise has to bluff his way into a really creepy sex orgy, <laughs> and he's got to go into this situation where he has to rely purely on his confidence and sort of critical thinking skills to get him through eyes wide um, shut is kind of a thriller too right yeah. oh, i yeah, mean yeah, yeah. he's kind of dealing with the horror of nicole kidman's desires right like she basically tells him outright like i want to fuck other people right. and this sends tom cruise into a tailspin well yeah and then once he goes to the sex orgy stuff starts happening afterwards and he may or may not be responsible for some shady stuff as a result. And yeah. Yeah, I feel it's like a good movie. like the false identity premise like I know like we've talked in the past of how thriller and horror like a lot of people like to think of them as being separate but I actually agree with you that thriller for me is really just a subgenre of right. horror right, right. and and that's a thriller is where like those false identity plots really shine or like people not knowing that they're living a false identity right. oh. Ooh. Uh, that, that's always a, a fun extra layer on top um, I wonder why, I, I don't necessarily have an answer to this question, but why do you think in rom-coms, false identities tends to be a fun, like the great lie is always, right. uh, not always, but it's very often the plot point of a rom-com is one character decides to lie whether it's yeah. for a bet <laughs> sure. or for other reasons. Or um, there's another false identity rom-com called Man Up where uh, mm. Lake Bell decides to, in the moment, take the place of another woman meeting Simon Pegg for a blind date. Okay. So she just decides that she's going to pretend to be this woman right. Because she like she's vibing with Simon Pegg, so she's like, I'm gonna just do it. Sure. Um, but but yeah, like this this tends to be a pretty popular trope in yeah. rom coms, and I don't really know why. Um, well, I think I mean I have nothing against the formula, against formulaic storytelling. I think you know when it's done well, when you when you use that formula right, it feels good. And one of the things that feels really good is when a character, when you ratchet up that tension of, you know their comeuppance is coming, and yet there's still that romance of the the main character and their crush or lover are so meant to be that even when they admit their wrongdoing, like they're, they'll still get together in the end. There's that sort of fantasy element of like, you know, true love. Do you think that it it's because all is fair in love and war that if if you're vibing with your true love in a lie scenario that somehow takes away the moral ickiness? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think this movie, um, I mean, we've talked about it before, I think, on this podcast, but, like, this movie or Overboard... Mm-hmm. Um, those are very icky movies, but they're done with such charm and such innocence that like, eh. Yeah, I mean, over- it's cute. 
Overboard, while being one of my other favorite tropes in rom-com, head trauma is also an abduction movie as well. Right. Which, like, <laughs> where, like, this man basically gaslights a woman and abducts her and forces her to care for his children. But, yes, based on the charisma of Goldie Hawn and uh, Kurt Russell, right. that's totally sublimated. Or even with with uh, Lucy, with Sandy Bullock, she's just so yeah. cute and right. charming. But I wonder, like, do we... If we put Kathy Bates in the Lucy role, does it change? <laughs> Maybe. Um... Or like, uh, what is it? Um, what was that movie, Ma, with uh, Octavia Spencer? Oh, yeah. Where she decides to infiltrate these children's, yeah. these teenagers' lives. Um, yeah, I think you definitely got to have a certain charm. Mm-hmm. You got to have a very innate likability. To get away to get with the uh, stalking and <laughs> <So> lying. <laughs> for sure. Trying to for steal sure. someone's... So have you never wanted to steal someone's family before, like Sandy does? I don't think so. Uh, I had a pretty good family growing up, so I don't think I needed, you know... What about stealing someone's life of crime? Does that appeal to you more? I that fantasy really <laughs> resonated with me because I think you know I think I'm a pretty pretty smart guy in some aspects and you always want to think like could I do it could I actually get away with it um, and so it's kind of cool to fantasize about that and in this movie he gets a chance to like actually see if he can do it. That's so interesting to me as far as like what. What is different? I mean, I don't want to make any generalizations about men and women, but I'll generalize about the two of us. You can go 90s comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, men and men like to think. Women like to feel. (laughs) Women be shopping. Um, No, but I find it interesting. So, like, for me, it's very relatable this fantasy of lucy of wanting to steal someone's amazing family like i've been in relationships where i you know wasn't that jazzed on the person i was dating but i totally would want to steal his parents like oh my god when somebody has amazing parents and family oh yeah no i want to be i want to be right in there like lucy chuckling behind her christmas present and stocking that she got on the spur over for nothing just for showing up right (laughs) um whereas i feel like it's it's more of a masculine fantasy this idea of committing the perfect crime i mean i do still think about committing the perfect crime but more so like how not to get murdered Right. Um, <laughs> how not to get dirty johned. How not to get dirty johned. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm not, you know, I, I feel like if I were presented with Esteban's situation, I would say no to that. Um, but yes to the Callahans, even though they're a little bit much. <laughs> gotcha. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I guess I feel the... The opposite. <laughs> <laughs> You'd rather go I, Breaking Bad. Yeah, I'd rather go Breaking Bad. I'd um, yeah, I, I really like that idea of just having to to bluff your way into something mm, and mm. sort of act like you belong there. Yeah. You no, I mean, again, like it's so interesting to me where it's like 
for you, that pull is towards a completely different sphere. For me, it's like this sort of like ideal domestic sphere that you could infiltrate. Right. Like, you know, Lucy's kind of like out in the public desert and then she gets to like go into this cozy little home. Whereas Esteban has to leave home and go into the woods to find himself. It's like a very, very opposite but similar character journeys. So what movie do you want to get into first? Um, how about while you were sleeping? All right, let's do it. You want to hit us with the summary? Yes, I do. So, while you were sleeping, uh, Lucy, oh, did you, did you notice that they said her name like 12 dozen times? Oh, like Rick Rick and Morty style? Yeah, like in the first 10 minutes, Lucy, 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 Lucy. I just (laughs) noticed that. Um, yeah, they barely say Esteban's name as, know, at all. I had to look all. it up. I didn't know it till you just said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I pretended like I, I bluffed my way into pretending. You like know what's I did. funny is I read an online um, review of the film that referred to Esteban as Julio. So even people who saw the movie oh, wow. are confused about what his name is. And then another review I read called him an unnamed man when they totally name him. <laughs> Yeah, it's... Um, but Lucy, they, they but want Lucy, you to remember. They, yeah, right away, right off the bat. Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Uh, Lucy is a lonely, fair token collector for the Chicago Transit Authority. Uh, and she has a secret crush on a handsome customer named Peter Callahan. It's all about those eyebrows. Yes. <laughs> Although they are complete strangers. On Christmas Day, she rescues him from the oncoming Chicago L train after a group of muggers push him onto the tracks. He falls into a coma and she accompanies him to the hospital where a nurse overhears her musing aloud, I was going to marry him. Misinterpreting her, the nurse tells his family that she is his fiance. At first, Lucy is too caught up in the panic to explain the truth. She winds up keeping the secret for a number of reasons. She is embarrassed, Peter's grandmother has a heart condition, and Lucy quickly comes to love being a part of Peter's big, loving family. One night, thinking she is alone while visiting Peter, she confesses about her predicament. Peter's godfather, Saul, overhears the truth and later confronts her, but tells her he will keep her secret because the accident has brought the family closer. With no family and few friends, Lucy becomes so captivated with the quirky Callahans and their unconditional love for her that she cannot bring herself to hurt them by revealing that Peter does not even know her. She spends a belated Christmas with them and then meets Peter's older brother, Jack, who is supposed to take over the father's furniture business. He is suspicious at first, but he falls in love with her as they spend time together. They go on a series of date-like non-dates and develop a close friendship, and soon she falls in love with him. Hey, as well. they move furniture together, which can make or break any relationship. Right, yeah. Moving um, moving stuff is definitely is definitely a test. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, more hijinks ensue when Lucy sarcastically mentions she is pregnant, which gets her into another awkward situation with Jack at a party, but that's, uh, rather quickly cleared up. After New Year's Eve, Peter wakes up. 
He does not know Lucy, so it's assumed that he must have amnesia. Yes. She, <laughs> uh, Lucy and Peter spend time together, and Saul persuades Peter to propose to her, quote-unquote, again, and she accepts even though she is in love with Jack. When Jack visits her the day before the wedding, she gives him a chance to change her mind, uh, asking him if he can give her a reason not to marry Peter. Even though she has a bunch of reasons on her own not to marry Peter, mostly because he doesn't even know who she is. <laughs> and it's pretty obvious that when he says, I can't think of a reason, he's basically saying, I can think of a bunch of reasons. I'm just not going to ruin it for my brother because I'm a good brother. Um mm-hmm. He replies that he cannot, so he leaves her disappointed. On the day of the wedding, just as a priest begins the ceremony, Lucy finally confesses everything and tells the family she loves Jack rather than Peter. I would like to think it was that terrible wedding dress that she was wearing. I I mean, how could she go through with it while wearing that (laughs) sailor Uh, dress? Oof. Uh, at this point, Peter's real fiance Ashley, arrives. I mean, real in, in kind of quotes as well, and also demands the wedding be stopped. As the family argues, Lucy slips out unnoticed, unsure of her future. Sometime later, while Lucy's at work, Jack places an engagement ring in the token tray of her booth. She lets him into the booth, after paying his fare, of course, and the entire Callahan family watches as he proposes to her. In the last scene of the film, they kiss at the end of their wedding and leave on a CTA train for their honeymoon. Uh, she explains that they're going to Florence, which she's always wanted to do. And when Peter asked when she fell in love with Jack, she replied, It was while you were sleeping. Bam! Boom, mic drop! You know, I... This movie is an old, cozy favorite for me. Sure. But I forgot about the freaking voiceover. Like, Uh, it added nothing to the... The um, the, the, book-ending voiceover is a very... Very yeah. big cliche. Yeah. That was very like I, I feel like that was something that they did in post production where right. they were like, It's not clear enough. <laughs> and I'm like, No, actually it's extremely clear. Right. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> we we like they really didn't need it and and like we would have even gotten the while you were sleeping thing right. without them saying while you were sleeping. I do like that said, I you know, we talk about catnip storytelling in rom-coms i think can be really cute like um they do it in when harry met sally where they set up at the beginning of the movie the different couples talking about how they met Mm -hmm. and then eventually they show harry and sally in the same couch or um your boy ryan reynolds uh was in a movie called definitely maybe where he's telling his daughter about her mother and it's kind of a mystery because he it's like almost like how i met your mother but without the bummer ending sorry for people who never watched that show spoilies um but he's telling his daughter about these women that he fell in love with and then one of them is her mother and yeah so i think that storytelling in a rom-com can often be really delightful and whimsical but this movie didn't need it at all. No. Um, I found it interesting. So because we watch these movies together, it gives me some interesting insights. 
I like that both Lucy and Esteban take their victim. I'm going to just call them victims. Sure. Um, because even though Lucy doesn't push Peter onto the tracks, I would like to think that she wished so hard for them to have an interaction that um, fate gave them like, oh, here's your interaction. So, I mean, like, you know, she didn't push him onto the tracks, but karmically, she like totally... Like invisible Groundhog's Day genies. Yes. You know, like that movie has an unexplained sort of just gimmick. Exactly. Like it, yeah. the whimsical lords of fate pushed him onto the tracks and gave sure. him a head trauma so that the plot could proceed but yeah she takes her victim's wallet to investigate his life goes to his apartment yeah like does a bunch of really terrible things um and then completely gets away with it yeah i always get super nervous and just antsy about certain things like um I don't know. Uh, I've, I've been. I watched Barry. I binged the whole the whole mm-hmm. Barry season, and that that show really ratchets up the tension. But I like it. But in movies like this, where they ratchet up the tension, and it's like she has to finally confess that she's been lying the whole time. It's just I don't know. It makes me squirmy and antsy, and I just don't like it because. Especially when it can all be solved with one quick line of dialogue. Especially right at the beginning. Like, all she has to do is go, no, I'm not. But she just keeps digging that hole deeper and deeper. But I will say that her final admittance at the wedding where she kind of pours her heart out, it was charming enough. And Sandy B is so charming that, like, you just, you feel for her when she's like, I just wanted a family. I have never had a family and I just wanted to be a part of something. And, you know, it's kind of hard to be. I think that's the part of the movie that that really works because, I yeah. mean, honestly, I, I mean, Peter Gallagher does some career best work with his eyebrows. But Bill Pullman, I mean, there's really not a lot to Jack as a romantic interest. Like, he builds rocking chairs. He has unrealized dreams and potentials. He's jealous of his brother. Um, And there's, like, just the actor chemistry. But really, everything kind of hinges on her desire for this family. Right. Uh, And I feel like that's the part of the movie that that really works. Like, I think some of the best rom-coms, like, I mean, like, everybody can, you can make the same sort of criticisms about any rom-com movie. Like, they're formulaic, they're sappy, they're this, they're that. Um, But for me, like, all of those objections and criticisms don't matter if the movie is working in important ways like um and the ways that i think a rom-com works particularly well is when it's not just about the romance between the protagonist but all the relationships in the film that go across divides like i think a lot of rom-coms are usually about more than just the ro- like the central romantic relationships like if there's a relationship with the parents or with other people within that ecosystem it usually makes it feel more complete and alive than if it's just driven by the romance yeah i agree um 
You saying that just reminded me of um, The Big Sick. Did you watch that one? Oh, I didn't get a chance to see that. But like, again, that's really about the parents, right? right? Yeah, his relationship with them. Um, mm. I mean, they have enough little bit of screen time that you kind of develop a, a relationship with Kumail and the Emily character. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting how he spends more time with the parents and you kind of you know, hope that they get together because he starts to get along with them so well. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's nice. Yeah, I mean, but it's like, like it's interesting. I feel like rom-coms really need that. Like they, they need a world to feel really lived in. Yeah. Um, but not so much with horror and thrillers. Like I feel like with with horrors and thrillers, you can you can paint the supporting characters in broad strokes, mm-hmm. and not necessarily give them a lot to do or a lot of value. Um, like really, like like with Elora, everything is about Esteban. Yeah, and you know everybody else in the movie are kind of just specters within his one man play right um whereas uh i think in while you were sleeping lucy's kind of a non-person until she gets into this situation she's just kind of existing yeah and um yeah it's just interesting to see her kind of interact with the family and how she brings that family together and I don't know. Um, I, again, I feel like it's really built on like a lot of again, a lot of the creepy plot devices yeah. <laughs> are able to be sublimated because Sandy is such a charming presence. Like I just I keep thinking about the scene when she comes over to their place for belated Christmas and she's clutching a present to her chest while she looks at everybody enjoying themselves. And I feel like only Sandy Bullock could pull this off and make it look endearing and not creepy. Like she's just looked at everyone and decided how they're going to die. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a a charming little moment because she doesn't care what's inside the present. She's just happy to have any present at all. It's her gift. Her gift is getting to see a happy family together. It's nice. Um, you keep mentioning Peter Gallagher's eyebrows. Uh, is Peter Gallagher a good looking guy or no? Oh, wait. So this is ambiguous to you whether or not he's handsome? Yes. Oh, so wait, so you're, you're genuinely not sure. I don't know. Like if I look at, uh, Chris Evans, I can look at Chris Evans and go, that's a good looking guy. Yeah, no, I mean, Chris Evans is good looking, and I mean, I've been watching The Witcher, like Henry Cavill, too, where it's like, it's kind of generic and objective that they're handsome. Right. Yeah, I I feel like, when was, oh, While You Were Sleeping was 1995. I feel like we had a more expansive view of handsomeness and, and prettiness in the 90s, like, we were kind of getting out of the 80s when we thought really weird looking people were hot. Sure. Um... But yeah, I think Peter Gallagher is attractive. All right. He is attractive, but I mean, he doesn't like I feel I love Chris Evans, but I feel like Chris Evans it's like he came from the hot guy factory. Right, right. right where right. like his looks feel almost 
generic or bland. Like, whereas like Peter Gallagher, you're like, woo, whoa, those eyebrows are just leaping off the page, sure, like sure. bolded underscores. <laughs> well, no. So yeah, my <laughs> wife, Sonia kept mentioning, I mean, obviously she kept mentioning the eyebrows, but she kept mentioning like, you know, swooning over him in, in some ways. And I was like, <laughs> I just didn't get it. Like, I just don't get it. He's got great eyes too. I mean, well, he's got those those big window washer eyebrows, those windshield wipers. But like Dermot Mulroney, I think of him where like he's not classically handsome in a chiseled kind of hot guy factory way that you mentioned. Yeah. But I can look at Dermot Mulroney and go like, all right, yeah, he's got a a handsome s quality to him. Well, also, Dermot Mulroney has an amazing voice. Like he's got a really yeah. handsome, handsome voice. He's got a he's got a sexy voice, and then also he's always projected himself as like a very classy man. Right. Um, he plays the cello and beautifully oh. as well. Um, but yeah, I think that they're kind of they kind of have similar aesthetics. Him and Peter Gallagher, where right. they're like doing this classy man thing. Although I like that um, you don't really learn that much about Peter in uh, while you were sleeping, but you kind of get the sense that he's really a sleazy guy. Right, yeah. <laughs> like he's actually like not this handsome, perfect man at all that he's really materialistic and yeah. likes to pay for nose jobs. And Saul, Saul even calls him kind of a schmuck at one point, right? Right. Or putts or something. Or we've learned that, it, so one of the things that the family shows Lucy is a newspaper clipping of him saving some squirrels. And then we learn that later he admits that he only saved them because he was the person who right. knocked them out of the tree to begin with. Classic. by throwing rocks or some shit so yeah like he he puts on this great image of being like i don't know maybe it's like he's kind of like a kinnear you know like greg kinnear is okay, is yeah. kind of like he's not like whoa like blow your socks off handsome like chris evans but he seems charming and good looking but might also secretly be sleazy Okay. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know what the first movie I saw Peter Gallagher was, um, but it was something where he played a total skis ball or scumbag or something, and that kind of tainted my view of him ever since. What about Bill Pullman? And I can't. What is your What is your opinion on his handsomeness? He's a handsome guy. He's like a he's like an an average Joe kind of quality handsome and. I like him. I think he's got a sort of natural kind of quality to his acting where it doesn't seem like he's trying too hard, but he's, you know. Oh, I think he's know. he's definitely become better with age. Like, I think he's really good in, um, what's that show called? The Sinner? I never saw that. Um, it, it's, a, it's a procedural show where, like, each season is a new mystery, but the only constant is it's Bill Pullman trying to solve the mystery. I think he's like an FBI agent or profiler or something. 
Um, I don't know. I definitely think that Peter Gallagher is the more handsome man. But really? you know what uh, Bill Pullman had working for him here? He had that classic 90s floppy hair. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Like, you can't, like... He's got a good set of hair on him. What's, what's a 90s movie without that floppy hair? <laughs> yeah. It's... It's a trademark look for sure. It it definitely is. Like I feel like um, uh, the kid from Terminator Two really oh, yeah, Edward Furlong. <laughs> Ed, Ed, Eddie Furlong <laughs> really patented the floppy hair look, and then everyone was like, "Oh, we got to get that." Yeah, he. Um, it's it's a good look. It's a good '90s look, but it's a good look in general. <laughs> Just. What happened that, to the floppy hair? Why why did we take it away? I don't yeah, we gotta bring it back. I, I'm gotta, ready I'm ready to bring back the hair flop. Uh me too. Yeah. No, who which of today's actors do you think could, could work some of that nineties floppy hair the best? I think I think uh, that Leo I mean Leo had a good I hair was gonna flop say Leo, yeah. back in the nineties. Yeah, his um Titanic, right? Titanic oh yeah, was no, a bit floppy. so so floppy. Yeah. Um, and in Romeo plus Juliet too, he was definitely working with some hair flop there. Um, but yeah, you have to have like really straight hair, I feel like to get the good hair flop. Yeah. Yeah. That's a key, a key element (laughs) (laughs) to that. Um, one of the things I didn't mention in my synopsis, but that I really liked was, I, what was his name? The Frank Jr. Oh, character? Joe Jr.? Joe Jr., yeah. I really liked the Joe Jr. character, his little gimmick and how, like, self-assured he was, but how he was never gonna be the guy who won her heart and his I, little, yeah. like, shoe fetish thing that he had going on. And... Oh, yeah, he's just, like, woogie in There's Something oh, About yeah. Mary. Woogie. Except not a stalker. I... Right. So that's something else that, like, okay, like, say what you will about this movie. It's not necessarily the most sophisticated movie. There's no cinematography on which to comment. The soundtrack for the movie is truly awful. Okay. Yeah. But... But I will say this. I like that this is a rom-com where there are no villains. There are, like even Ashley, right. like even Ashley, although she seems like a rich bitch, isn't a villain and Joe Jr. isn't a douchebag. Like yeah, right. he seems a little douchey, but everyone in this movie is essentially a good person. And I I liked Joe Jr. too. I like when he breaks up with, or he gets dumped by the woman (laughs) on the third floor. Again, like this, this is a world that feels totally lived in. I I hated Joe Jr. at first. The first one or two times I saw him, I was like, he was really gross. This guy. But then the more screen time he got, the more I was like, oh, this guy. Well, yeah, yeah, you you get familiar with him, and right. then you're like, well, what's Joe Junior gonna do next? And right, and he's so he's so comically sleazy sh- sh- in in that way, where it's like, oh, Joe, like even even Lucy is kind of like, oh, you. She doesn't take him seriously as a sort of like threat. Right, like, so. <laughs> and it it makes for good comedy right. when um when Jack is like you're with this guy yeah. Joe, and for her to laugh and be like <laughs> yeah right Are you right away serious <laughs> like there's no way, yeah. and then I like that he also becomes like a character witness when she and Jack 
are really vibing with each other. Yeah, the leaning. Like, yeah, the he's leaning. leaning. <laughs> he sees he sees that he's leaning. That was good. Yeah, because he's leaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the leaning part was probably my favorite bit. Yes. Um, no, I yeah. I feel like movies can like in rom coms or, or hard romances too. The way it which they paint physical intimacy or growing physical intimacy, it's really hard to do that in a way that feels organic. Right. Um, and then also just doesn't look awkward. Like, I will never forget the sex hug from Job We Met. Yeah. You know, and there's a sex hug in while you were sleeping the when, ice. when they're falling on the ice yeah. but because of the ice it makes the sex hug feel totally organic and not yeah. i wish like I, I we're a podcast so i you can't see anything but i like the little the wiggle little motions wiggle, yeah. that you're making in response to the the ice sex hug i wanted to keep saying like um in in the synopsis that i said it was like non-date date like dates oh yeah but it was kind of like they found a way to keep doing these meet cutes yes without it like i mean they meet once in the movie but they kind of keep meeting over and over again in this way of like he doesn't trust her but then he kind of trusts her but then he has to like learn this about her and mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. keep they keep meeting over and over again in in a cute little way and well, it's also important it's... that he's the one who keeps coming to her. Like she, right. she does a few things that are very stalkery and really weird, um, but they try to keep that to a minimum so you're still kind of firmly on Lucy's side. And then they make Jack the main person who's pushing the relationship, right. which I think really worked in that case. Yeah, I agree. Um... Yeah, so it was a it was a fine movie. <laughs> you, you roll your eyes as you say that. It's okay to say that you did not and that you wish you were sleeping <laughs> while you were sleeping was playing. No, the movie had enough charm where like I know that Sonia definitely enjoyed it more than I did. She was laughing throughout the movie, giggling throughout the movie, swooning throughout the movie. Um, not in an overly enthusiastic way, but she was definitely enjoying it more than she I She met the was. movie halfway. Right. Whereas I, I didn't hate, at no point did I ever feel, especially the movie's under two hours, right? Right. At no point did I ever feel like, all right, we got to wrap this up. It was a fine, it was a fine movie. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> that you know, hey, that's okay. We'll we'll get into. I I feel like I th- I I thought it could have been much worse. I was expecting it to be much worse. Okay, well, there's um, there's that. I but mean, it was. I you know all the characters cozy. in it were good. This yeah, is a yeah, cozy yeah. movie. Like it's not right. trying to be exciting. It doesn't like prickle the back of your neck the way like El Aura might because right. it's a thriller. It's just meant to feel warm and cuzzy like a cup of hot cocoa. And I mean, yeah. that's that's just the vibe that they were going for. But let's talk about Ooh, vibe yeah. changes, though. Let's talk about what would happen if While You Were Sleeping were a horror movie. Sure. Should we do that first, or should we say who we would kill from the movie first? Oh, shoot. I forgot about that. Um, I have a character right away, though. Okay, yeah. Tell kill. me who you want to murder. Uh, Saul. 
murder Saul. <laughs> he keeps lying to Sandy. First of all, he encourages her to lie to the family. And then he keeps lying to Sandy by saying, I'll tell him, I'll tell him. And then he doesn't tell him and he only perpetuates the lie. And then he slinks away like, like a little coward. And, ugh, Saul, man. God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would get rid of Saul. That that's fair. Like, I mean, and also he's not he's not realizing that his machinations make it harder for Lucy and Jack to right. be together. He just is. He's just a meddler. <sighs> he is. He's. I mean, he is trying to help, but at the same time, he's gotta go. He's got to go. The, he's gotta the go. The fuckers got to go. I what is that from? I don't remember. This is the end or something? Maybe. Um, yeah. I don't remember. to go. I don't remember, but I like that line. Um, I actually kind of want to kill Grandma. Okay. I I felt like she wasn't as funny as she mm-hmm. could have been. Like, her, her grandma asides, like, when they were at the table talking about how tall actors were who this person or that person... I just didn't think that she was that funny. And then I was like, you know what? Kill her of a heart attack. I don't care. She's got that heart problem. She's just got to go. Yes. No. Yeah. No. No heart problems. No more. (laughs) (laughs) Heart solved. (laughs) Problem solved. You Um, you no longer have to lie. (laughs) uh, Did you want to go first or did you want... Um, I'm really curious about your horror version. I had a really hard time with this one. And I wish, like, part of me wishes I could really delve into the specifics, but I had to keep it a little, a little vague in some aspects. Okay, okay. Because I couldn't, I couldn't devote the time into getting that, that really nitty gritty kind of L aura details that i wanted but um but i like it uh i'm just gonna keep the title while you were sleeping i think that's a really solid title uh especially for a horror movie i think it's very ominous actually it is a good you know it's too bad while you were sleeping snatch that one up out of the pile or else we could have had some good while you were sleeping franchise horror movies yeah um but uh yeah so lucy lucy i'm actually both of my movies have a lot in common, so <laughs> Lucy has everything going for her. She's got a good. So this is unlike Lucy in the. Um, oh. Whoa. Unlike Lucy in the rom-com version, Lucy's got everything going for her. She's got a good job with a big a- account that she's about to close. Oh, the big account. The big account. She's got a fiance who loves her very much. Is it Peter? Sure. And she just bought a new house, so she's got everything uh but then while taking the l one day and this is going to be sort of like um so we're still in chicago we're okay. still in chicago awesome. but you know the l does go underground for a bit so this is oh. going to be one of the underground parts of the l uh while taking the l one day someone mugs her takes her purse which has all of her identity and stuff in it and pushes her onto the tracks and she falls, she hits her head. Oh, shit. She she sort of blacks out, she's in a coma, but then we get this POV and sort of these silhouette shots of this weird monster-like creature coming and going over her body, and maybe it's, like, gonna eat her. But oh. then the train starts coming, and the monster runs away, and then someone notices her on the tracks, and they save her, or the train stops, or what have you. 
I'm uh, imagining a Pan's Labyrinth, like, practical effects monster. Yeah, very creepy, very, um, what's his name, Doug Jonesy. Yeah, um, Doug, Doug Jones will do anything with a monster suit. For sure. Uh, so Lucy is taken in as a Jane Doe where she's in a coma, and she wakes up several months later. And after she wakes up, she goes home to her to her quote unquote brand new house. But there's like police tape all around. Oh shit! And so so she sort of uses a hidden key that she planted earlier. But she she finds no signs of her fiance or that anyone's really been living there. Um, just like all this police type stuff. Uh, so then she goes to work where she's really like stared at and like they and don't modeled. know who she is. No, they know who she is, but they're like, "What is she doing here?" So then Ooh. she goes into she's brought into her boss's office, and her boss essentially like scolds her and is like, "I can't believe you would come back. Can't you believe you'd have the cojones to come back after what you did to the big account? It was oh, in the palm of your hand, no. and you just blew it off, like." What happened? So there's some gaps. So there's some gaps. And uh, while the boss is talking and scolding her, he's basically buying time for security come to escort her out. And it's basically alluded that, like, she ruined everything at the big account. Uh, And then she calls her fiance and is on the phone with him. And he's like, I don't want to meet you. I don't want to do anything. And she's like, oh, my God, I just need to meet. I need to talk to someone, da, da, da. And he's like, fine, I'll meet you at this restaurant or something public. Uh, So they go to meet up for lunch and he basically says like after the way you treated me I don't ever want to see you again blah 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 and he basically storms out on her So she goes back home and she turns on the TV and she sees that she's wanted by police for committing a string of child kidnappings What? What? (laughs) Whoa! And so she goes and so then the police show up right because the fiance probably called the police and was like uh, As she, one she, does. She showed up at, at this place. So she's she's back on the prowl or something. So the police come to her house and like there's a little chase scene involved where she's got to run away through these neighborhoods and stuff like this. Uh, and Lucy decides like, shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to the subway where it all started. So she mm-hmm. goes back to the subway where it all started. And there's like a little bit of a crowd and whatnot. And then she sees in the crowd herself. And so herself (laughs) slinks into the subway and, like, is walking through the train tracks through that, like, grimy part of the subway. Oh, shit. And so Lucy follows herself in... Her doppel? Her doppelganger. She follows herself in and she sees that, like, this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles underground lair of, like, you know, or, like, Punisher Warzone. They must have pizza, right? (laughs) Right? Tons of pizza boxes around and, like, that rat, the rat who eats pizza or Splinter. Splinter, yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, basically she discovers this, like, ancient doppelganger body-shifting monster thing. And it's got a kid that it's kidnapped. And, like, obviously there's, like, Is it, like, a Lovecraftian monster? Yeah, very kind of old-school Grimm's fairy tale-esque. Oh, yeah, yeah. but then, so she sees the monster and it's got this, like, kid trapped in a cage or something. And he's, like, basically taunting the kid and kind of, like, picking at bones and, like, I'm going to eat you. But he doesn't really talk. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess he'd have to talk, though, if he pretended to be Lucy and ruined the big account and all that. But in monster form, he doesn't talk. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense. 
And so then the monster leaves and Lucy comes and has to like save the kid and she's trying and she's got to like do all this stuff to save the kid and she's panicking. And right as they're about to escape, the monster kind of comes back and is like, whoa, she took my kid. I'm going to chase him. And so then there's another little mini chase in the subway, but they escape because the train comes and kind of like separates them. That classic trope. Uh, so she takes the kid to the police and is like, I found this kid, this, this, she, you know, the kid was kidnapped and the police are like, shit, you're the one who kidnapped her. Let's throw you in jail. So she gets thrown in jail and then this detective shows up. Oh, by the way, there's going to be a detective subplot through the whole movie that I didn't really work out. Are they romantically linked? No. (laughs) But there's this detective subplot throughout the whole movie, uh, that I needed for the very end. But I didn't realize that until But suffice to say, the detective is tracking her everything. Suffice it to say, while all this is going on, there's little scenes of a detective kind of putting stuff together. Uh, So then the detective shows up, and he goes to pick her up and takes her away. And he's like, I got to transfer her to downtown or whatever. And then the cop starts driving to a secluded area. Oh, what? And the cop is really the shapeshifter. Ah! And so then she escapes, and there's like a little mini chase, and they go to um, basically the train yard where all the trains are kept, and there's more kind of chasing. Oh, that's a great showdown spot. And fighting. Yeah, remember that uh, noir trapped that we saw? Oh, that city. ends in the train, yeah, too. Yeah, I thought about yeah, that, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then essentially she pushes the monster or something, and it falls on the tracks, and a train runs it over, and then she's staring nice at the- Nice callback. Right. And then she's staring at the dead, disfigured, shape-shifting body, which is probably, like, the thing where it's, like, a bunch of different human forms kind of all meshed together and and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Like an Akira monster. Yeah, definitely. That blobby kind of grossness. Um, And then the cop shows up and the cop sees the monster. The real cop. The real cop shows up. The cop sees the monster and he's like oh shit, this lady wasn't lying. This monster was crazy and kidnapped her. And and then he's like, I'm going to let her go. But then he looks up and she's gone anyway. And she's now like riding the train. And she's going to like... On the roof of the train? I don't think so, no. But she's basically like now going to live her own kind of crazy new life on the road. Logan style. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so that's While You Were Sleeping, horror movie edition. I like it. I okay. like that you had a supernatural element. Yeah, I definitely, like, it'd be so creepy if you fell asleep, woke up, and all these people were like, what did you do? And you were like, I didn't do anything. I was sleeping. And that kind of, like, aspect of, like, having to put together this mystery element and then having a monster in it. So, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, I kept mine to the the real, but um, sure. I, I added I added some elements. Um, but most of the in both Elora and in this, I would say that I kept a lot of the major pieces, um, right. but then just just did a little bit of a twist. Yeah, there uh, were certain things I wanted to keep. Like I wanted to keep the fact that there was a train and a coma. Yeah, and, yeah, you got to yeah. work in that coma, right? No, I, I also kept the coma. Um, I see that you did away with the Callahan family completely. You were just like, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I thought about it. I thought about having like a family type aspect or like a, a, a Hills Have Eyes or oh, Texas yeah, Chainsaw like if Callahan's type were murderous. Right. Uh, I, it, it, you know, that crossed my mind too, where I was like, what if the Callahans loved killing people? Um, yeah. But I actually ended up not using them that way either. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, so I. Again, like I agree with you. While you were sleeping is is a pretty good title in itself, but I again just decided to do a little bit of a twist. This one's called "While You Were Dying." Ooh. Um, and the the first part of the movie is actually from Peter's perspective. Okay. Um. So first act. Peter Callahan, he's a successful lawyer in Chicago with a great apartment and a trophy girlfriend, but he's also a sociopath plagued by American psycho-liked ennui. Mm. His material life will just never be enough. So he decides he wants to commit the perfect murder. Uh, And then he picks CTA worker Lucy as his victim because she has no living relatives. Uh Uh, and then he also intuits that Lucy has a crush on him, making her an easy target. Ted Bundy style. Uh, yep, 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 yep. So Christmas Day, mm. Peter plans to murder Lucy, but some ruffians, those those Chicago ruffians, uh, knock Peter out and push him onto the tracks. Lucy saves Peter and follows him to the hospital where, again, we learn that Peter's in a coma. And then the confusion happens once more where Lucy is mistaken for his fiance. And then she decides to go along with it when she finds a photo of herself in Peter's wallet. Because remember, he's going to kill her. Right. Um, but she's like, oh, he's into me too. So she thinks that means he's into her. Um, she almost doesn't get away with it though, because Saul hears her telling Peter the truth while he's in his coma, but then Lucy pushes Saul off the roof of the hospital. So this is to prove not only Uh. does Lucy think Peter is in love with her, she is also a sociopath, a murderous sociopath, but you know, she's Sandy Bullock. So she's so cute. Right. (laughs) Um, So now we're into the middle act. Lucy is infiltrating the family while she tries to piece Peter's life together from her findings. She goes to Peter's apartment and she walks into his walk-in closet and finds a murder shrine with lots of pictures of her with her eyes scratched out. But again, Lucy misinterprets this. She misinterprets this as meaning that Peter is like really into her. She's like, oh my God. I mean, why doesn't my boyfriend have a murder wall of me? I mean, I, I, when I was reading, you know, it's like a popular Netflix series now, You. A little um, bit, yeah, yeah. But I was, when I was reading the book, I kept joking with my boyfriend. I was like, why aren't you systematically trying to eliminate every, every obstacle between us? Like, do you even love me? <laughs> um, but no, don't, don't act, don't actually do that. Um, <laughs> so meanwhile, while this is happening, Lucy is also getting really close to Jack, just like in the first movie. Sure. And she's conflicted because she's like, oh man, but Peter really loves me, even though he's just obsessed with murdering her. 
And then Lucy's neighbor, Joe Jr., keeps trying to butt into Lucy's interactions with Jack. So one night she invites Joe into her apartment and shoots him with Drano before stuffing him in her closet. Okay. I just, I felt like, although there's a lot of tension to be had from Lucy misunderstanding that Peter was planning to murder her, I didn't think that the movie would be interesting if I didn't murder at least one person per act. Right. So, I mean, yeah, we gotta, gotta get... Joe has got to go! Joe's got to go! Um, and then New Year's Eve, Peter wakes up. So that brings us to the third act where Peter, he's seeing his whole family in the hospital and Lucy too, who they insist is his fiance. Peter only remembers that this is the girl that he wanted to murder, but now he's so close, he decides to go along with the charade. They decide to get married the next day, even though Lucy is now in love with Jack. Um, having killed two guys already, Lucy knows what she has to do. So she goes over to Peter's apartment the night before the wedding. Peter also thinks this is the perfect opportunity to murder Lucy. So they're about to meet knowing that they're, well, not knowing that the other person is going to try to murder them, but they've, they've got murder on their minds. Um, you know, actually Lucy and Peter in this version are really perfect for each other. They're kind of simpatico in their objectives. Um, so Lucy still thinks Peter is in love with her right up until they begin trying to stab each other with kitchen knives. Mm. I, I know I did the kitchen knife fight, um, in my remake of job we met, but it's just so much fun to get two people in close quarters trying to stab each other. Yeah. Um, So she manages to mortally wound Peter, and with his dying breath, he asks her, when did you know I wanted... (laughs) I can't. Um, When did you know I wanted to... (laughs) When did you know I wanted to murder you? And then Lucy and... (laughs) Do it. (laughs) You can do it. (laughs) Um, Lucy answers, it was just now while you were dying. And then she stabs him in the heart. Yep. The end. The end. I mean, the the romantic plot with Jack is unresolved, but sure. we'll just assume that they get together after this. But yeah, yeah I, I really, even though I hated the voiceover in the movie, I decided I was like, fuck it. Let's work it in. You could have a mid-credits scene or something where, where her and Jack are together. But then he sees a wall, like a, a murder shrine of him, and then Lucy's behind him. Oh, that would be knife. amazing. Wee, wee, wee. I would love, yeah, mid-post credits with right. that. Oh, that would be great. But yeah, while you were dying. While you were dying. I like that. That's good. Oh my god, you're gonna probably love hate what I did to the aura. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, you'll. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Mine's a mine's a pretty classic rom com. You know? I you know again. I had a lot of trouble with that one and working out the romance side. I got yeah. the comedy side down pat. Right. You'll see. Um, but the working in the romance part was hard for that one. Um, but yeah, so I I feel like we effectively raised while you were sleeping. Into a horror. Yeah, for sure. With monsters, with stabbing. I I don't think we could have done better. 
No, I agree. It was a uh, it was a really tough one to tackle, but I'm pretty pleased with how they both turned out. They were they were are, they're, they're they're both very watchable movies. Oh yeah, I mean, and they're they're good movies for trying to turn them into horrors. Um, <clears throat> all right, so shall we go on to the aura? The aura, yes. So I'm curious, what made you interested in picking this movie? You'd never seen it before now, right? I had seen it. Oh, you had seen it? Yeah, yeah. A long time ago when it first came out, that was in my blockbuster days when I got Mm. free movies, free movie rentals. And uh, I just picked it out of the blue. It was a new release. And I said, hey, I'll give this movie a shot. It had, you know, the, the cover is like the guy with the gun to his head or something. And it says the aura. And I was like, that's weird. And um yeah so i just i gave it a shot and i remember really liking it and like i said it was that catnip movie for me where a guy has to bluff his way into a situation and um i also like movies that kind of take place all from one main character's point of view right they kept it very tight to esteban like we saw I don't think there was a single scene that he wasn't in, like no like expository thing that would have, like even when there were scenes with other characters, you were with Esteban watching them. Yeah. And that's also another thing that I just really like in movies, movies that can do that as close as possible or do it completely. Um, And so it's just, I remember it being very tense and very, Mm -hmm. very much a slow burn kind of thriller. But uh, when you said false identities, that's kind of the first movie that popped to my mind was like, oh, yeah, this guy is pretending to be someone he's not. and He's got to kind of bluff his way into this situation. And But he yeah. has a unique set of skills that make that possible, which right. I think is also interesting. Like, And I, I felt like they did a good job of showing why Esteban was uniquely suited to bluff his way into this situation. Right. But he also, like, he was very... uh, What drew me to him was he's a very quiet character. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't talk when he doesn't have to. And a lot of the times he lets the other characters talk for him. And so they kind of, like, talk their way into a situation. And he kind of just goes, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's me. Right. Well, they give him the information he needs to know. Right. I'll tell you what else I liked about this movie, even though I will admit, speaking of sleeping, I, I did fall asleep during the last 30 minutes. It's a very quiet movie. movie. Even well, when it's tense, it's very quiet. Here's what made this movie uniquely positioned to make me fall asleep is it has, um, well, in the beginning and the end of the movie, they play this Vivaldi piece, which, right. woo, classical music, um, and Vivaldi is up there for me. There's so much more than the Four Seasons. Um, but other than the Vivaldi bookends, um, the score for the movie is this kind of ambient tone, right. which looked sounded like it could have been one of the tones in a white noise machine. Mm-hmm. And if you're not fully engaged with the movie... It is soothing enough right. without the gunshots. And the movie's very gray. <laughs> yeah, the movie's <laughs> the very movie. gray. Like, like your, your, the brightness of your screen, the yeah. ambient tones. It's very quiet. It, it, it's, the characters mumble a lot. There's many meditative moments among trees. 
So yeah. it, it is uniquely positioned to where, like, if you're tired, if you're sleepy, a lot of this movie might happen while you were sleeping. Um, sure. But, no, I, I agree that it's, it's, I, it's a really interesting movie. And it actually, I think, in Latin America, it got some awards and nominations. But I know I talk all the time about how I hate it was all a dream setups. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this movie did a really good job of not doing that, but still making everything feel dreamy or as if yeah. everything that proceeded after he had a seizure in the forest, was it real? Was it a product of his mind? Did he manifest his dreams and desires into reality? I mean, none of those questions get answered, but that's totally okay. So it has a dreamlike feel without the cop out of, oh, it was right. all a dream. Esteban was fantasizing. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, which I felt like would have really insulted me. I never got that, did. that it was all in his mind. Like, I never thought for a moment that maybe this was all a product of his aura-esque hallucinations. I don't think it's that so much as, as like, was what happened really authentically the result of just, you know, events in reality, or were events compelled by um, Esteban's most secretly wished for dreams and desires? Because the movie begins with him waking up from a seizure Mm -hmm. and then the movie ends with him back in his workshop where he was in the beginning of the film and then they only reference the days um during the events of the plot so there's kind of a sense of out of time where like is the beginning in the movie and the end of the movie is that all part of the end of the timeline or did it proceed totally chronologically? So I again, it never. I don't think the movie ever made me think that it was all a dream, and I right. don't think that's what it was going for. But the way that a lot of the most intense um, action points were bookended by seizures makes you think that there's like a dream-like quality yeah. to everything that happens. Um, so I, I found that really interesting. Um, and apparently, like, uh, the guy who plays Esteban, like, he's, like, a big thing in Latin America. I Or I don't know how big he is, like, popularity-wise, but, like, he is a hard-working actor. He's got, like, 88 credits. Yeah. So, I mean, he's he's in everything. So I wonder if Esteban is, is out of character for what types of characters he usually plays or, or if he's usually the silent type. That would be interesting. Yeah, I guess I would have to assume he's always the silent type, but it's just because mm-hmm. he's so good at it in this movie. But uh, yeah, who knows? He could be a very charismatic actor in most of his movies. Perhaps. All right, so should we get into the summary before we go further? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we begin the movie in Buenos Aires. Uh, Esteban is an epileptic taxidermist. He is working in his studio, listening to Vivaldi. And you see there's a figure at the door, a woman who's banging on the door. But instead of opening the door, Esteban just turns up the music. 
uh, and then keeps working. Once he finishes working, he then takes his um, taxidermied foxes to, um, it looks like a natural history museum. And there he meets up with his friend Sontag, who's also a taxidermist who does like deers and, and mountain lions. Um, while they're waiting for their checks, Sontag invites uh, Esteban to tell him how he would steal the money from the museum. And so Esteban, it's like a really beautifully shot scene. It's really e cool. Yeah, Esteban talks through what his perfect heist would be uh, for the museum and the exact amount of time it would take to get everything done. Uh, and we learned that uh, Esteban has, um, I don't think he has um, photographic memory. Uh, I was trying to look it up. I think mm -hmm. he has something called like hyper themesia, which is where you have like perfect autobiographical memory. Right. Um, so Esteban remembers everything that he has seen and done to the point where Sontag asked him for the serial numbers on the briefcases with the money and Esteban is able to recall it with perfect clarity. Mm -hmm. um, Esteban goes home that night uh, and finds that his wife has left him. Um, there's no, again, there's no dialogue. It's just completely shown. We see the empty coat hangers, the fact that she's not there. There's an envelope with a note for him. Uh, and after this, Esteban decides, even though he doesn't like killing animals, he's going to go with Sontag on this hunting trip. So he and Sontag leave the next day to go on this hunting trip yeah, and, cool little transitions too, where he's sitting, yeah, in the same spot over and over on the plane, on the oh on, yeah, on the no, like, and all that, yeah. Like his his like physical, like the way that he carries himself is yeah. very very consistent, and um, <clears throat> so also I felt like in that airplane there was so much room. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I I there's like a few moments when I'm watching a foreign movie where like something truly foreign takes me out of it and the truly foreign thing in argentina was that these motherfuckers have leg room in their in their airplanes leg room and aisle room just plenty of room i know i'm i'm infuriated <laughs> by this um but so they make it they make it to the country but all of the lodges all the hotels are booked up because of some event but the they tell them like, hey, you can go to this guy Dietrich's cabins. Like I wouldn't suggest it if there wasn't, you know, any other option. So they go to Dietrich's cabins and there's this boy there named Julio. And he's like, ah, we're all full. But then Julio's, Julio's sister, Diana, pops up and she's like, no, nah, we got room for you. And at first you think maybe Dietrich is her dad, but it turns out that they're married um, but we never see Dietrich. Um, we just see pictures of him. So Sontag and um, Esteban go to the woods. They're hunting, but then they get in a fight because Sontag basically accuses Esteban of being a pussy and not being able to kill animals. And, and so they separate. Uh, Esteban goes off on his own where he then, I think this is like an important point in the movie. He has a seizure in mm -hmm. the middle of the forest and he falls to the ground. And then when he wakes up, 
he's, you know, he's a little different. He, he feels like he's ready to kill this deer. Again, he doesn't say anything, but I feel like the actor who plays Esteban does a good job yeah. of communicating where his headspace is at. And this is another scene where I felt like they filmed it really well. He finally spots this deer and he's looking through his scope and he's moving around looking. And then it's like, now you see the deer. Now you don't. Now you see the deer. Now you don't. And then he turns his scope back again and fires. But what he fires at through his scope is another person. What? Yes. So Esteban killed a person when he was trying to shoot this deer um or do you think he looked through the scope saw it was a person and then just decided to fire you really you think it was an accident accident. so he goes up to the person we find that it's dietrich uh and then esteban much like lucy decides to take his wallet and his phone uh he takes that back to the cabins Sontag decides he's going to get out of there. He's done with this bullshit. And yeah. he's mad at Esteban for calling him out for being a wife beater. Right. Um, so fuck that guy. A lot of wife beating in this movie. <laughs> a, lot of wi- a lot of wife beating in this movie. Um, thankfully, none of it happens on screen. Right. Um, and then uh, Esteban, Diana asks him if he's going to stay more. And he says, yeah, I'll stay. Um, and then that night, I think, um, does it, Esteban either gets a call or he listens to Dietrich's voicemails Mm -hmm. and he learns that Dietrich had been planning, uh, a heist. Uh, so he goes to the location of where this heist is happening and sees it all going down. And this is again, like kind of what we were talking about earlier, where Esteban is just kind of this guy that observes. Like, he doesn't talk, he doesn't do anything, he just watches it all go down and then decides what to do from there, like a character in an RPG. Um, So he follows this one criminal who's leaving the crime scene. Uh, Esteban follows him in his car. That guy dies. Uh, Esteban takes this necklace with a key off of the guy who dies and then uses it to unlock Dietrich's cabin in the woods. Doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, no, no, no. The key is for something else. The key is for something else. But he uses the, he, he takes the key from the body. And then when he breaks into Dietrich's cabin in the woods, we learn that this key will unlock an armored car right which is the next thing that uh, dietrich's criminal group plans to heist they plan to rob an armored car leaving a casino uh so esteban learns about all of dietrich's plans uh figures out how dietrich planned to do this heist uh and when he gets back to the cabins Dietrich's associates, Sosa and uh, Morena, um, had his name somewhere in here. Uh, what is his name? Uh, Montero. So mm-hmm. Sosa and Montero are there. They're looking for Dietrich, but Dietrich isn't around. So they're like, well, we're going to come back later. And then I think that very same night is when Esteban goes to the casino uses Dietrich's gambling system to play, and then he meets up with this guy, Uriel, 
who is the inside man for the armored yeah. car heist. Uh, and this is where Esteban basically, at this point, decides to pretend that he's in on the heist and he's Dietrich's man right. um, from Buenos Aires. Um, but still, like the, the people who are part of the criminal enterprise are like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about this guy. I'm not sure about this guy. And um, Esteban continues to go around and kind of learn more about how, how this heist is meant to be done. Uh, and he gets into hot water with Sosa and Montero because they, again, are like, who the fuck is this guy? Where the hell is Dietrich? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're going to, it gets to a point where they're going to kill uh, Esteban but then Esteban manages to do some, like you were saying, it's your catnip. He does yeah. some quick thinking and manages to make them think uh, that he's part of it. So they decide, you know what, fuck it. We'll include Esteban yeah. in on this heist. But Julio, he's not so sure. He's like, no, I know. I know Dietrich. He was married to my sister. Uh, and with some questioning of um, Esteban, He's like, no, there's there's something else going on here. Like he, I like the scene where Julio keeps asking Esteban, is he coming back? Right. And Esteban can't really answer. Yeah. And Julio knows that he's lying, but he's like, fuck it. You know, we got to get on with this heist anyways. And guys, if you've ever seen a thriller or a noir or literally any movie with a heist, then... You can guess how this goes. Like, with the exception of Ocean's 12, where the heist goes completely perfectly, which I I love Sandy B, but man, that's so infuriating to me. It's like, where's the the drama? Where's the conflict if the heist goes completely right? Um, Well, in this case, there's a lot of drama because the heist does not go right. And they, they managed to get the armored car, but then the third man, which Dietrich in his notes had circled multiple mm-hmm. times, um, locks himself inside the armored car so they can't get in there to get the money, even though they have the key. Um, but then Esteban's like, well, let's take him back to this secluded place right. where we have the tools. So they go back to Dietrich's cabin in the woods, and while there, uh, Sosa and Montero turn on Julio. They shoot him in the head, and they're about to shoot Esteban, but they're out of bullets. So they go into the cabin where earlier in the movie, Esteban, I liked this visual cue too, Esteban had found that behind the five-point buck head that was in the cabin was a gun, was a handgun. Um, So before one of the guys can shoot Esteban, he retrieves the handgun, uh, and then a chase ensues. He manages to overpower Sosa and Montero. He kills them. He takes the money. When he gets back to the cabin, Diana is gone, and she has a letter on the table Mm. for Julio, and it's also a visual callback to the first scene when he gets the letter from his wife that she's gone. So all the women in this movie, they just decide to peace out, basically. (laughs) They're like, "Eh, I don't want to be part of this. I'm going to go infiltrate someone else's family. 
because um, that's that's their con. That's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you do. That's what women do: infiltrate families. <laughs> Pretty much. That that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, <laughs> but he takes the money, and then he just he goes back to work. Yeah. The movie ends with him back in the workshop working on. Uh, now this time he's working on a lizard. I don't know if there's supposed to be symbolism in the fact that at the beginning of the movie, he was working on a warm-blooded animal, a oh, fox, yeah. which is traditionally like a trickster. Right, a tricky. And then yeah. at the end of the movie, he's working on a reptile. Like maybe right. has he become cold-blooded or, or yeah, what's the deal? And then the movie ends on a slow zoom of the dog, which used to be Dietrich's dog, mm-hmm. but Esteban took him, but a slow zoom into the dog's eye. Um, and then the movie ends. Yeah. So I, I think it's easy to say, or or I think it's easy to, to say that Esteban never cared about the money. Right. It was all about the thrill of the heist and to see if he could actually do it, to see if he could outsmart the cops and the bad guys and plan it. And I mean, they never even show that he has the money. They show that he has a bag and it's assumed that he has the money. I kind of like, I don't know, I kind of like a version where he never gets the money and it's kind of all for naught. he just leaves it? Something like that. Um, But yeah, because... Maybe he didn't know how to get into the armored car or mm. something, but um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just like how this guy kind of goes on this really tense sort, you know, quote unquote, wacky adventure. But then it's kind <laughs> of like he also then just gets to go back to being normal. Um, but is he? I mean, some important things have changed. Like he's working on a different animal and then also he's acquired the dog. But I mean, essentially, he's going back to his normal life and his normal routine. And it's I don't think he's going to be doing any more heists anytime soon. I don't think he's going to be going around killing. Like, I don't think he's got a bloodlust in him or anything. Mm. I think he's just kind of, like, satisfied that, yeah, he got to, he got to do it and he got away with it and... Meh. Now it's just like he crossed it off his bucket list. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I feel like we're meant not to necessarily feel like it's totally complete, especially with the slow zoom into the animal's eyes. Like hmm. I feel like they're I thought the slow zoom might have been like did he kill the dog? And then the dog blinks and it's like, oh no, the dog's still alive. I that did occur <laughs> to me, but I feel like it's um it's like um, to put on my English major close reading hat. It's like, so at the beginning of the movie, he has to put these fake eyes into mm-hmm. the fox's, um, oh, yeah. into the fox's taxidermied form. And so there's this sort of like, it's artificial. Right. It's a reproduction of the real thing. And then at the end of the movie, the real thing which is the dog, mm-hmm. is there in the corner. So maybe yeah. in the beginning of the movie, everything was artificial and potential as far as his his potential for violence. Like everything was theoretical or artificial. Like even 
the the heist that he planned in his head. It's all kind of a right. dream. But by the end of the movie, all of those things have been realized. Yeah, I would agree, but I would also agree that, or I would also maybe argue that it's realized, but he's he's sort of satisfied with that truth of knowing that inner truth about himself, of knowing what he's capable of um, without having to feel the urge to do it again. Mm. Um, Where do you think the aura factors in? So I didn't mention this in my summary, but uh, the reason the movie is called The Aura is because as he explains to Diana at one point, she asks him, what is it like to have an epileptic fit or seizure? And he essentially says that he feels an aura come over him right before the seizure begins. He knows that it's going to happen. And suddenly he's in this place of, as he describes it, absolute freedom, mm-hmm. but then also lack of control because he, he can't stop the seizure from happening. Right. Well, yeah, it's, it's freedom in the fact him. that he doesn't have any choice mm-hmm. and the choice is made for him. So he has the freedom to enjoy the moment completely without burden of making any kind of choice. Um, but I wonder, so how does that relate to his dreams of committing the perfect crime? I don't, I think it's just kind of a cool stylistic flair where it's a really tense moment where he's running out to the car after he learns that, um, the guy who died in the heist was supposed to be the third man inside the truck. So now some other guy is the third man and Mm. his own crew doesn't know that there's going to be a third man. So there's like, oh, and he's, he's such a, a a nitpicky kind of detail oriented guy. Like when he's working on his taxidermy stuff, he's very detail oriented. And that is also tied in with his sort of photogenic or hyper realistic memory or whatever he said. So it's like, he had the perfect heist plan. He bluffed his way, but then this one detail that he should have remembered, but he forgot happened. And then this other, like all this stuff is happening and all he's got to do is drive to these people and warn them. But like, oh no, a moment of calm in the storm. And it's just like, I just found it this very super tense, but very like the way they shot the aura and the way it's kind of sweeping, but in close-ups and the way the music kicks in. I just thought it was super well done and just kind of this very dramatic moment of like, like, of course it had to happen now. You know what I mean? Like, oh, why now? Like, it's so coincidental, but it never felt to me like it never really felt manufactured or kind of that formulaic thing of like, oh, yeah, it happened now. Um, right, but it didn't happen while he was driving. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know if it... Um, I think it's also kind of maybe feeding into his detail-orientedness where like he becomes hypersensitive when he's in the aura, but he also kind of... That hypersensitiveness carries over to his attention to detail and his memory and he's just kind of like a very hypersensitive person um but he's also very quiet and observant there's one part where um sontag 
is like, oh, they're all booked up. And that guy comes out and he's like, oh, Sontag, I hate to lose you like this. But, you know, go go to Dietrich. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't suggest it unless I unless you were all out of options. And Sontag's like, um, Esteban, what do you think? And he's like, nothing. And I thought that was a really cool character moment. Because he's just like, ah, I don't care. Like, I don't have any thoughts about this, you know? like He really let's do, doesn't. Yeah. He's, um, yeah, he's very much like, go with the flow. Do you think he's autistic? I got that vibe. I, uh, I was thinking about that. Like, the first time I watched it, I don't ever would have thought, I don't think in that in that time period I ever would have thought like oh yeah this guy's definitely on the spectrum but watching it now like almost right away I was like oh this guy's on the spectrum (laughs) well yeah because he like he's very observant observant and intelligent and and he sees detail but he seems like he's emotionally disconnected. Yeah, he lacks like, a certain social cue, social um, but he also awareness. chooses to to block it in right. important moments. Like I, I think it's implied that his wife wants to have a face to face confrontation with him because she's right. banging on the door while he's working, but he just turns the music up and is like, "Fuck off." Um, and then with Diana, you get the sense that he's interested in this woman, but it's more, it's less like sexual interest and just curiosity. Right. Just pure curiosity. Yeah. Like they, they have some weird interactions with each other that just feel very ambiguous, but completely devoid of any kind of emotional current. Like, if there's, like, the opposite of sexual tension is what they had. Right. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It was... And it's a cool little, like... Like, even when he sees her changing, it feels kind of devoid of... Like, usually you'd have, like, oh, he's, like, a creepy peeping Tom. But it's, like, you never get the sense that he has any sexual interest in anything. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Yeah. It's... It's kind of a cool little, I don't know if it's twist, but like play on the genre. It's against trope um, mm-hmm. that like there is no romantic interest in the movie. Uh, I like that. Yeah. I, I prefer like, again, if you're going to be a rom-com and, and romance is the name of the game, that's perfect. But if you're a thriller or a horror movie, tacking on a romantic plot just Oof. always feels so forced and like... I resent that it feels as if filmmakers do that because they're like, this one's for the ladies. Right. Y'all want to see some relationships. Mm. And it's like, it's kind of, it, it insults our intelligence to assume that we need that out of yeah. all movies when it's like, if you're not going to do it well, just don't do it. Right. You know? Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a lot of movies, especially action-y or horror-based movies, where it's it's totally unnecessary. Well, I, I gave this example in the previous episode, but like with The Running Man. Like The Running Man is, is such oh, a yeah. fun action sci-fi movie, and nothing about the movie would have significantly changed if they took the romantic plot right. out of it. Right, right, but right. it's just like they tack it on because they're like, it's Arnold and he's got to rescue the girl and then he's got to sure. get her. 
He's such a hunk. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Where it's like... Lifting weights. It's like having an orgasm. <laughs> Gumming all the time. <laughs> it's um, one of my favorite documentaries, actually. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I just really liked uh, his whole performance and his kind of quiet, subdued performance. And I really like how this movie, even though it is quiet... It's got enough like teasing you along with what's happening that it. Um, I never really felt like I was watching the clock to be like, ugh, this. I mean, it's just over two hours, but um, I never felt like, even though it is slow. It's about atmosphere. Like I felt yeah. like going into this movie, it 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 made a few things clear from the very get-go where right. i didn't go into this movie thinking like oh it's going to be guns ablazing right. and like i like i knew that there was going to be a like some kind of criminal plot because they tease us in the beginning with the um with Esteban's dream crime mm-hmm. sequence um but like i feel like the movie did a good job of communicating its atmosphere so that I didn't expect it to change and right. become like um, Baby Driver or right. something like yeah. that. Where like, yeah, like 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 movie tone, I think does a lot to set up what your expectations are for what's gonna happen next. So like, I know it's like, okay, this is a slow atmospheric movie where there's gonna be some ambiguity. Yeah. And like, even before I'd seen the end of the movie, I, had a pretty good idea that we were going to end on a fairly ambiguous note. Like this wasn't going to be a movie that ended with Esteban throwing money into the air and jumping on his back. Right. Like Sc- Scrooge uh, McDuck. Yeah. Or what's yeah. Yeah. Like Scrooge McDuck. Exactly. But yeah. it's like a different kind of heist movie would have that moment. Right. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and they'd be like, no, we have to have that moment. Yeah. Um, but that's not what this movie was going for. And like, I, I appreciate that kind of consistency where like it gave what it promised to give. Yeah. Uh, it's very much just like a very hidden gem kind of movie where I think I could very easily recommend it to people. Um, I would recommend this movie to guys. I yeah. mean, I maybe I'm just being a sexist, but um, I, I this is definitely a movie where it's like, guys would like this movie right it's yeah it's got a sort of testosterone masculine feel to it a lot of guys beating up their wives and women just leaving (laughs) right women like again like that quiet masculinity (laughs) women just decided to leave um yeah it kind of you know it, it reminds me like like they're very different movies but it reminds me a little bit of les samurai Mm-hmm. Like where yeah. it's like a like a muted, very muted color palette, quiet, on the spectrum protagonists, sure. um, and crimes and heists that proceed in less of a flash boomy way. Right, and something going wrong in the main character having to kind of oh yeah deal with it and negotiate, yeah. but silently. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was an interesting movie, even though I did fall asleep. <laughs> um, but yeah. I was I was tired. I I've been getting over the flu. Um, all right. Well, let's bef- get into. So should we talk about run, our crushes, our crushes yeah. first? Let's get into our crushes. All right. So I'm very curious to know. I mean, there's not a lot of characters to choose from. 
Yeah, not a lot of characters to crush on. I can yeah. tell you it's definitely not Dietrich or Sontag. And also that name Dietrich and the fact that we're in Argentina leads me to make some connections. Ooh, some good call. connections. Dietrich is a German name. Um, I didn't so, even think about that. Yeah, I'm pretty like I'm like 90% certain that Dietrich is a Nazi. Um, or maybe his dad or granddad. Sure. We're, we're not, we're not sure. But yeah, who in the movie is worth crushing on, really? Um, I don't really like Esteban. I mean, I guess you I'm going to, I mean, well, to crush on, no. I uh, mean, like, yeah. I mean, he clearly doesn't have a great track record with his relationships. And I mean, I would be, if I was trying to get Doug's attention and he just turned up the volume on All whatever right. he was listening to, I would be so livid. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> hard to get. Women love it when you play hard to get. I mean, not when you're like already in a relationship. <laughs> I think I think you can stop playing hard to get once you've been gotten. Right. <laughs> um, at that point, there's really no need to be coy. Um I guess Diana, because sure. I, I'm going to just say Diana because she was pretty and she had good hair. Okay. What about you? Gotcha. Uh, I really liked Esteban, but um, uh-huh. I don't want to pick the main character. I try to try to steer clear of that. But, I mean, why um, not? If you, you crush on who you crush well, on. Well, I really liked uh, Montero. Was that his name? He was sort of the... The long-haired older one? The one who gets injured? No, the other one. Oh, the other I one. I like the hot shot one. Oh, yeah. The I like him because he's the he's one who... trigger happy. Yeah, I like the one because he's the one who's like... No, we sh- he's... I always like the character who does what you should do, which is like, no, we should just get out of here. We should just call it a day. This I have a bad feeling about this. It's kind of fucked up. There's too many variables that are unknown. Like the fat kid in Let's kids just movies. Go. Yeah. Uh, and then he kind of turns, you know, he's like, he shoots Julio and he's going to shoot Esteban. He's like, well, what did you think we were going to do? Trust you and then split the money with you? Like, come <laughs> I on. I did like that. I did like that uh, And then lot. he kind of just gets, you know, he gets his comeuppance in the end. He gets shot by, by, by our hero. And so I, I kind of liked his character. You know, he was that delicious amount of evil enough, but he was also that, you know, responsible amount of evil. Right. No, I, I, yeah, no, I like that. You're right. His character had some good layers. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. I'm Let's very get into curious these about your... <laughs> okay. I, I'll go first yeah. then. Um, so I feel like you're going to know where this is going when I tell you the title, which is Weekend at Dietrich's. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> So, Act 1, Esteban is a taxidermist down in the dumps after he's been left by his wife because he lacked passion. Uh, He decides to go with Sontag on a hunting trip, just like in the first movie, Mm -hmm. to do something different and prove he's a man. And then these two bumbling guys, they get into some road hijinks, like some National Lampoon-style snafus. So this is, I guess, more of a bro comedy than a rom-com. Gotcha. Um, But Diana's the girl. I mean, as much as, like, man, I know I just ripped on adding romantic plots where they don't need to exist. But since this is 
ostensibly a rom-com, there is a love plot between Esteban and Diana. Um, so once again, the accommodations are full. So they go to Dietrich's cabin. Uh, the cabins are even more shabby than they are in the first movie, but like hilariously. So, sure. you know, like handles breaking off and stuff like that. And Sontag doesn't want to stay. But when Esteban sees Diana, he insists that they do. And then they also meet Julio, which is Diana's brother and an aspiring drag queen. Um, I don't know. I just thought it might be fun to make Julio a drag queen. Um, So while hunting, Esteban looks through his rifle scope and he sees Dietrich and Diana arguing. And just just as it looks like Dietrich is about to come after Diana with a knife, Esteban accidentally shoots him. Um, so the commotion brings Sontag, Esteban, Julio, and Diana to the same spot, and they all look on Dietrich's dead body. Diana then reveals that Dietrich was a bad guy and a criminal mastermind. Of course. Which, of course. Um, but they've got a problem because Dietrich was planning another big heist, and his buddies, Sosa and Montero, are on their way to the cabins now. So Sontag has an idea. They should put... (laughs) They can can put sunglasses on Dietrich (laughs) and carry him between him and Esteban to make it look like Dietrich is still alive. Yeah. And then Diana and Julio go along with the plan because they don't have any other ideas. Um, And the rest of the second act is just increasingly bizarre attempts to convince Sosa and Montero that Dietrich is alive, like making it look like Dietrich is having dinner with everyone. Um, They also include him in on one of Julio's drag routines. Like, again, I just think (laughs) having (laughs) a drag routine or, or musical sequences, they dance around Dietrich's dead body would just be great. Um, this also gets Esteban and Sontag deeper in trouble because now they have to take Dietrich's place in the heist. Um, and then meanwhile, Esteban and Diana are getting closer and he shares that he has epilepsy and it's like cute. Um, but much like the cop in your movie, I, I didn't really have time to write in the, uh, growing intimacy scenes between Esteban and, and Diana, maybe when they're working Dietrich between them, his body (laughs) falls over and they kiss. I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, they're, they're getting closer. So now we're getting into the day of the heist. And again, it just goes spectacularly wrong, but they're still able to get the locked armored truck to Dietrich's cabin. Um, and then once there, just like before, Sosa and Montero shoot Dietrich because they think that he's alive and they don't want to share the loot. So they're like, fuck you, Dietrich, not realizing that he's already dead. Um, and then Esteban, Sontag, and Julio knock out Sosa and Montero. But then a new guy comes and what? it's Urien 
the inside guy at the oh, casino. Yeah. And just as Urien is demanding to know what the hell is going on here before he shoots them one by one, Diana takes him out with a rifle from beyond the trees. So she snipes him. And then she nods to Esteban because she totally did that for him. And then asks if they're going to have to pretend Urien's alive at the casino. Uh, and then they all laugh. <laughs> Um, so, yeah. we- weekend at Dietrich's. I like it. I can imagine uh, when Esteban shoots Dietrich, he shoots him in the eye. So that's also why he needs the sunglasses. Oh, yes. And then when they shoot him, the bad guys shoot him, they shoot him in the other eye. And you can have a little humor there of, like, oh yeah, eye shooting out. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely happens. want, like, stuff happening yeah. with Dietrich's dead body. Yeah. I mean, I almost worked a voodoo curse in there, like a Weekend okay. at Bernie's 2. I've never um, seen a Weekend at You've Bernie's never Bernie's. seen no. them? Are, is it worth watching or no? Oh, I, my God. No, not no. at all. <laughs> but I, I don't know. <laughs> so, like, there's certain... Like, you know, like, how you, like, you mentioned your blockbuster days, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I feel like... The changes in technology have really changed the ways that we find movies. And yeah. so for me, Weekend at Bernie's came during our pre-streaming days. Right. Back when we used to watch TV. And there were a few movies, most of them like middle grade, that they were just playing on TV mm-hmm. all the time. Weekend at Bernie's and Weekend at Bernie's 2 they were just always on TV, always on TV. And I I watched them or I got into watching them because I don't know if this ever happened to you as a kid where you got tricked by the animated opening sequences in older movies. Like, no. it, like they used to do this in the yeah. 80s all the time where they would open a movie with cartoons. Yeah. Like they do it in Greece and then they do it in Weekend at Bernie's where I think like, oh, this is Looney Tunes. Like I'm about to watch a oh. hilarious cartoon, um, but it's just the opening sequence. Um, but yeah, in the second Weekend at Bernie's, which I don't know how they managed to work this dead body into two different full length movies without him decomposing in either. But in the second movie, um, Bernie, the body, ends up with them in like a tropical resort mm-hmm. and somebody casts a voodoo spell on Bernie's body that makes it so when music starts to play, mm. his dead body starts to dance. I like it. And like the guy who plays Bernie had, does like this weird like dead body dance. It right. just, it, it's... I think it's hilarious. It's in poor taste. It's not even really that funny, but it's just, I don't know. It's a fascinating moment in our cultural history. Yeah, I mean, we I've never seen a Weekend at Bernie's movie, but of course I'm very familiar with, with the reference, with the reference yes. and w- with the aesthetic and all that, yeah. <laughs> so it definitely permeated pop culture big time. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me, where did you go with your remake? Uh, well, I, I don't really have a title for mine. I couldn't think of a good one. I thought of something like Deja Vu or Nice to Meet You Again, Again, or something like that. Or like, um, I thought maybe like Meet Cute the Movie or Meet something. Meet Cute the Movie. But I, I don't have a very clever title or a very good one. But um, you'll you'll see which movie mine is kind of 
ripping on maybe okay <laughs> big time um which is a movie i haven't seen but another movie i'm very familiar with but uh diana and her fiance i didn't give the fiance a name Ooh, diana's just... the protagonist oh, in yeah. this version yep, yep, nice yep. Diana and her fiancé have it all. A nice house, a good job, and each other. So very much like my other movie, uh, starting out with a character who has it all. I like that you like to write successful women. (laughs) Uh, But then one day, Diana gets hit by an armored truck that's like involved in a police chase. (laughs) uh, And she suffers a brain injury. So she doesn't remember her fiancé, and he has to quote-unquote win her back. Oh, okay. But there's a slight problem. Diana now suffers epileptic seizures, and every time she has one, she adopts a different persona. Oh, whoa. (laughs) What? So I have like a very, this movie I thought of like uh, Kate McKinnon or something. Uh, Oh, yeah. Someone who can be very wacky and like play all these different types of people. I love Kate McKinnon. Um, So I don't have like a very thought out plot plot, but I just have these gimmicks that I can get through. The very first one that I thought of was maybe like a Sunset Boulevard kind of like washed up 50s actress who's gone a little crazy. Um, And maybe she's at like a friend's wedding or something, but she's like making it all about her and being a total darling. Um, And so, you know, like she's just being crazy. One of her personas could be like an overconfident doctor and maybe someone at a restaurant. (laughs) I'm a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe someone at a restaurant is like choking and she's like, we have to perform an emergency tracheotomy. And they're like, can't we just do the Heimlich? And she's like, no. Uh, There's like a mob boss persona, maybe like a Russian mob boss. We can throw a lot of accents in there. And so maybe she's at like a work client meeting and she like goes into the meeting as this mob boss and she has to like do this negotiation. I love it. She's super tough. Like maybe normally she's she might be a little bit more reserved, but now she's like super tough and she's negotiating and it takes everyone aback, but she also like This is perfect for Kate McKinnon. I know. Uh, one of her things is like maybe she's a stunt car driver and then she gets involved where like a policeman comes and has to commandeer her car, but she's like, get in, I'll drive. And she she's Fuck involved yeah. in this police chase, but she's not a very good driver. So it's like very wacky. And, you know, the policeman's like, what do you do for a living? She's like, I'm a stunt driver. But she clearly has no idea what she's doing. <laughs> and then one is maybe like a Southern cowboy thing, uh, you know, where she has this like Southern drawl and she's very confident and has to like, you know, flirt with her fiance or whatever. But then... Basically, her, you know, because in the rom-coms, you always have to have the big breakup. So uh, the fiance and Diana get into a fight while she maybe like adopts this more royalty type persona where she's like, I don't need you. And he's like, fine, I give up. Uh, if you don't need me, then I don't need you either. We had the perfect life. taking a lot of shit from all these personalities. I know. And he's like, it's not worth the trouble, whatever. And so he leaves. But then she has a seizure and she turns into a journalist And she starts looking into her own life and discovering that her fiance was really the love of her life. And so maybe she like writes herself a little note saying like, you know, like I've got to get him back or she like leaves herself a clue. So like are all the personalities going to work together now? Well, so then no. So then she gets into a car to drive to rush to say to like win him back. But on the way to win him (gasps) back. Rush to the airport. Yes. On the way to win him back, a dog goes into the street and she's got to swerve out of the way of the dog. 
and then the like there's a car accident that happens because of the dog and the dog kind of gets injured but it's that kind of injury where it's like very 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 clear that the dog's not in any danger of actually dying good it's like a tire bounces and hits the dog and you hear but then the dog's just limping so it's i like, don't need another rogue this is good yeah so it's just like oh no the dog's just limping but it's clearly okay he's just limping and you know it's it's fine um, but then, so she goes to the hospital and the, the fiance comes back and is like, oh my God, are you okay? And she's like, she has the memento that she had from, from when she was the journalist. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I remember, she's like, I don't remember you, but I remember our love, something cheesy, something romantic. And they basically hook back up and, and they go back to their normal life and they adopt the dog, just like the guy, um, Yay. Uh, just like the guy in the aura kind of takes the dog in. And they, they live happily ever after. Why didn't that dog give a shit about his murdered owner? Like, you hear about right. Hachiko and all these loyal dogs who feel sad for their owners. And that dog was just like, mm, I guess you're the new pack leader. His owner probably beat him. Maybe. If he beats the wife, he probably beats the dog. I mean, maybe that's why the dog was killing all those sheep. Right. He took it out on the sheep. I like that a lot. I like the multiple personalities. Yeah, I thought it was a very, uh, it, it kind of reminded me of 50 First Dates or something, where it's uh-huh. like, you got to reintroduce yourself to your crush every time. But, but she's acting different every time. Right, but she's makes acting it more fun. Right. It's not yeah. just Drew Barrymore. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I thought like this would definitely be a showcase for a female comedian to really just go all out and have fun. Oh yeah, no, I think this yeah. would be great. Yeah, I somebody call Kate McKinnon for sure. All right, all right. Should we get into love bites? Love bites. Yeah. Did love you want to go? Sure. Go first? So I was thinking about. Other movies I'd seen that have a false identity premise or something like that, mm-hmm. um, without giving you too many spoilers, um, the movie that I landed on was actually one that I saw in theaters with Sonia. We went to go see a little movie directed by Paul Feig called A Simple Favor. Oh, yeah. And this movie, it's a thriller, but it's also a comedy. And it deals with, you know, those layers of twists and identity that you typically find in a, in a good thriller. But then because it's Paul Feig who directed Bridesmaids, he has kind of a feminine comedic twist to it. Uh, the main character is played by Anna Kendrick, uh, and then Blake Lively is playing opposite her. Both of these girls are rom-com royalty. They've definitely done their time Mm -hmm. in um, genre films. And it just seems like they're having so much fun in this movie. Oh, and then also the hot guy from Crazy Rich Asians and Last Christmas, Henry Golding, I think his name is, is in the movie as well as the guy. Um, Whereas, like, you know most male driven movies they have the girl right i feel like henry has become the guy in a few female driven projects and he's great at being the guy just the generic handsome guy that everyone wants um but yeah with i i don't want to ruin the movie by telling you too much about it um but yeah if you're looking for a fun 
female-driven thriller comedy that has kind of an identity theme to it, A Simple Favor is Hmm. a lot of fun. All right. Yeah, I remember Sonia coming back saying it was pretty good. Yeah. So They had a joke about Diabolique in the movie that made us laugh pretty hard. (laughs) Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check it out when it, like, hits HBO or something. (laughs) Yeah. No, Um, I mean, I actually think it's on Hulu. Oh, is it? Yeah. No, there you go. Um... I don't play a lot of video games anymore. Oh. But I bought a game that I like. I really like. It really drew me in. It's a game Ooh. called Hollow Knight. Hollow Have Knight? Have you heard of Hollow Knight? Is it, I, I've heard the name. Is it, um, is it a side-scroller? It is. It's a side-scroller. It's a Metroidvania. It's kind of described as like a Dark Souls-esque Metroidvania. It so is pretty hard. hard. It is... <laughs> Um, and, well, the, the cool thing is, is that all the hard stuff about it is sort of supplemental. Mm. So you could get through the game on it pretty easily and just beat the game and get the, the very standard ending. Um, and it's not that hard. But if you want to do all the extra stuff and get the 112% and gotta, do all you that gotta get stuff, it. Yeah, uh, then it does provide a lot of crazy hard challenges um, but it's one of those things that like when you actually get it, you're like, oh yes, I got it. Ooh. Um, so it has a lot of replay value, you think? I think so. I'm still working on it. I'm still working on getting that 112%. Um, it's, it's very big. It's a very big game. The map in this game is huge and there's a lot of hidden rooms and it's kind of got that aspect where like, I have to collect all these heart pieces type things from Zelda. and mm-hmm. Collect I've gotten, the tokens. I've yeah. gotten through the game now, and I've got most of them, but not all of them. But now I just have to basically look up on a guide how to get them, but I don't know which ones on the guide I've already gotten. So it's it's kind of... Te- I've gotten to that kind of tedious point in the game where it's like mm. if I want to hit the 112% because I'm a completionist, then at this point I'm basically just doing the YouTube videos and... I relate to that really yeah, hard, yeah. really hard. I feel like you don't know how deep you are into a game until you've been trying to do some menial task for a long time, and then you've gone as far as going on Game Facts or watching right. YouTube videos or Twitch streams to kind of just get, to get it, just done. to just <laughs> to get it, and you're like, "What? How, how did my life become this?" Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that also means that the game is really good and it drew you in. Right. Um, yeah, the aesthetic is really cool. It's got this like bug aesthetic and they're all underground. Is it like pixels, and... like sprites? No, it's, everything is hand-drawn. Oh! And it's crazy beautiful. Um, the one thing I don't like about it is the lore is very, 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 very ultra-vague. So there's, okay. there's not, like, everything is super vague and done in, like, riddles and ciphers and it, nothing is spelled out for you. So if you go on YouTube and try to watch anything lore-based, it's all speculation. And I, I kind of like my lore to be maybe a little bit more cemented and firm. Um, is that important to you in a video game, that it has a good story? Yeah, I like the story. I like a game that's that's kind of point A to point B. So if something very Mario-esque or Metroidvania-esque, that's like, just get it done. I don't really like a lot of open-world games. Oh, God. Yeah. Because I just get world, too distracted. You the know? open-world trend has really not been my favorite <laughs> i i the only game that's open world that i ever completed was um 
Horizon Zero Dawn, which is freaking amazing. <laughs> like that one really drew me in. But I just I could spend all day in in that world. It was like Avatar. Those people who got depressed oh, yeah. that Pandora isn't real. Like I got depressed because Horizon Zero Dawn isn't real. <laughs> it's a crazy cool game. But um, yeah, I'm kind of like Esteban. I want not freedom <laughs> of choice, but freedom from choice. Yeah. In my video games these yeah. days, I just like the challenge of it. I like like um, I like that kind of overcoming the skill level and getting better as a player yeah um, i like that so hollow knight was right up my alley it's a really cool game um it's gotten really popular uh, which is nice it was like it's like a two-man team um that oh. made it so i think you know they had a little bit more than two people ultimately but a very 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 small team made it and it's mm-hmm. freaking huge it's like a 40 hour game easy oh wow um that's for long. a metroidvania it's yeah, very for like long. a side scroller yeah. that's pretty long um so yeah it's very long very in-depth very cool very challenging nice nice little game hollow knight and it's coming out there's going to be a sequel to it or like a prequel or something i'll have to check that out yeah and it's on switch i know you like the switch I, i got it on steam but yeah yeah gotta go with that switch gotta go with that switchy swoo all right well until next time we're we'll Do something other than fake identities. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Talk. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. All right. Bye. Bye. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.